0: It's Crazy Eddie's greatest stereo sale ever. Get anything and everything in stereo equipment. Get it all now during Crazy Eddie's greatest stereo sale ever. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane.
1: I don't think there's been a TV commercial that's been more parodied, more than the one of Jerry Carroll of the old Crazy Eddie spots in the 1980s. And if you have an accounting background, Crazy Eddie may ring a bell. And if you're remembering accounting fraud, you are correct. But what's the rest of the story. I've recently finished a book by Gary Weiss entitled Retail Gangster, The Insane Real Life Story of Crazy Eddie. And I'm glad the publisher included the words real life because there are times in this book, I feel like I'm reading fiction with the types of fraud that we'll hear about. I'm Mark Gandy and I'm no Jerry Carroll. And hopefully this is not a crazy podcast. Gary Weiss, author of Retail Gangster, is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. When I hit record, when I started my interview with Gary Weiss, I didn't even ask a question. I just said, Gary, this is the most bizarre business story i have ever read and gary he agreed
0: you're absolutely absolutely correct that's exactly what uh, uh what has been haunting me from the day one on this you know which for me was back in 2007 when i began to you know sort of nose around crazy eddie it's just the most bizarre complicated difficult story that I've ever dealt with. Cause you know, it, it wasn't so much the it wasn't so much the fraud, but everything that surrounded it and all the sort of the, I view it as sort of as an octopus, you know, with all these tentacles, you know, all these things going in
1: opposite directions. That's an interesting uh, way, way to view him and that entire uh, family. I'm curious what, what led you uh, to the story? Did you find the story or did the story come to you?
0: Well, the story, we sort of found each other, kind of. The story and myself found each other. Originally, I um, uh, it, it really goes back to around 2006, 2007, when I was keeping the blog. And one day, oh, I still have the blog. I mean, it's still up, but I don't keep it actively. And one day I received a comment from uh, this guy I never heard of called Sam E. Antar. He was actually commenting on somebody I'd been criticizing in the... Um, uh, in my blog and also in a previous book, you know, a book that came out some years ago, um, so I got to know Sam, and um, you know I you know, became interested in Crazy Eddie through Sam, Sammy Antar. You know there are a bunch of Sam. Sammy Antar was Eddie Antar's nephew, I should say nephew, nephew. I'm sorry, he was his cousin. He was his first cousin. Um, he's sort of his kid cousin, and he was the uh, financial mastermind of the crazy Eddie fraud.
1: And we're going to get into Sammy in a bit. In a bit, mm-hmm. I have a feeling he will be listening, so I want to give him a shout out. Uh, I gotta how do I want to say this? I want to give him a shout out because I respect him, mm-hmm. N- not because of what happened during the crazy Eddie days after crazy Eddie. So I am a fan of his, I've watched two or three of his. Uh, not seminars, but uh, talks uh, Mm. for accountants. So I I just want to give him a thumbs up and and, and a quick shout out. So he is very, very helpful in in this book, right? Oh, yes,
0: yes. He was uh, very helpful in terms of guiding me through through the labyrinth of the Antar family and also sharing with me his own personal file, much of the public record, pointing me in the right direction. So, yes, he was very
1: helpful. And before we move on and get into the book, mm-hmm. I did a quick search. Again, you'll hear me say this a lot. The mm-hmm. book was great. Uh, the book was absorbing. It was engaging. It's like I did not want to put it down. No, thank you. But I was looking, has there been a movie made about this? And I've read, where, I've read where it looked like there was going to be a movie or is going to be a movie, but I can't tell where it's been. Mm. If not, this would make a great limited series. I don't even know if a, a movie would do this book justice. It it almost needs to be like an eight to ten part series, say like a Netflix mm-hmm. or HBO. What are your thoughts about this being on the screen? Well, actually, I
0: totally agree with you. You know, I think it'll be a terrific movie, but uh you know, that sort of thing is out of my out of my hands, above my pay grade. And well, so I'm not in a position to influence these things. You know, I mean, we shall see what we shall see, as my mother used to say.
1: This story is a Shakespearean tragedy, and as I look at the life of Eddie, and I'm going to let you jump in here in just a second,
0: mm-hmm.
1: part part to to look at the story, we almost have to look at some of the people around him. We've already mentioned Sammy, who became his chief financial officer. We'll get into that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the father-son relationship was not great. Mm -hmm. Uh, The siblings, uh, especially the way things happen at the end, uh, I'm smiling here. It's not funny, but we have the two Debs, uh, and you're smiling too. Did I get this right? A Shakespearean tragedy?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, and you know, you were mentioning, you know, movie adaptations, TV adaptations. Uh there's there were elements of big love. If you recall the uh, TV series Big Love from some years ago, I, I loved it. It was this great uh HBO mini-series limited series. Well, it was more than that, it was a regular series. Uh, you know, about this um this uh, sort of dynasty of uh it wasn't a Mormon dynasty, it was sort of a polygamy dynasty, an offshoot of the Mormons you know, in Utah, and it's it was fictional. Uh, and you know, there was uh, at the center, or one of one of the one of the subplots certainly was dynamism between the older man, the the um, patriarch of the family, and his son played by you know Bill Pashton. I thought it was a great movie. And I you know there were certain elements of of the Crazy Eddie story that reminded me quite a bit of uh big love, sort of a combination between, you know, you take big love and the Godfather and uh, make it Jewish. And that's that's crazy,
1: crazy. (laughs) The reason I was so interested in getting and reading this book, it it popped up on my Kindle Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. And in the early 1990s, my first job in accounting was at KPMG. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, Uh huh. Yeah. I thought you'd say that.
0: Okay. PMJ. Yeah.
1: And it just happens to be that when we were studying internal controls, so I, when I started, we had a like lot this two weeks of orientation. And I think we spent about a day or two uh, going through internal controls and the crazy Eddie story was brought up. Now, mm-hmm. here's the thing. Maybe I was, maybe I was sleeping. They didn't say who the auditors were at the time, <laughs> uh, which was uh, it wasn't KPMG back then. I think it was Pete Marwick in Maine or something else. Mm-hmm. But but I my knowledge of Crazy Eddie was just the name, commercials and fraud. That's all I knew. So walk us back. And when I say the beginnings, I'm not mm-hmm. going to say before Crazy Eddie, but the beginnings in terms of that first store second store what was that what was that store environment like we'll be right back money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives but how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account
0: Well, the initial story, I mean, you know, when you say, you know, the beginning, of course, you could trace it back to, you know, to Syria where the family, where the Antar family came from. Um, But in terms of the beginning of Crazy Eddie, the beginning of Crazy Eddie was in Brooklyn. It was on on King's Highway in Brooklyn. That's a street that eats an east-west street. It goes through Brooklyn. It goes from the poor neighborhoods in Brownsville in East New York, and it goes all the way over to the – new york bay and it's a mainly a middle class street it's a shopping district for much of its length and eddie was his he was set up in business in an electronics store right smack in the middle of king's highway uh, right near where it intersected with coney island avenue It was a very conventional middle class sort of lower middle class neighborhood and you know it, it it, 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 you know, the, the idea was to set in set up Eddie with uh, his father, Sam, and Antar set him up, the patriarch of the family, set up Eddie, his oldest acknowledged son. There was another son, but we won't get into that. So the idea was to set up Eddie in business because that's what tradition required among the Syrian Jewish community setting up eddie in business eddie had gotten his 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 early training actually on times square in uh tourist uh tourist traps luring in tourists and selling them grossly overpriced cameras and binoculars and all that other stuff (laughs) so eddie was trained in ripping off customers so he brought that skill to his new store, but he couldn't very well make money doing it, not on Kings Day Highway, because the clientele was just too smart. You know, they weren't tourists, you know, they were they were, you know, they were street savvy people. They weren't gonna, they weren't, they weren't gonna buy any any of it, you know, they weren't gonna pay triple uh, you know, retail price for a, a camera, that kind of thing. And he had had problems therefore, you know, it, it, the, the store was not a raging success. So uh, he started to get into discounting and the, the whole ethos of Eddie's discounting well first of all you know he as I mentioned he learned how to how to rip off customers on uh, on Times Square. so he just walked into a into his initial store and you know the whole idea was and you know and then you were in a real unusual sort of environment for New York City's store it was almost like a middle eastern soup to a certain extent you know you grab the customer almost physically and, and really ram the product down his throat but in order to for this to be uh, a acceptable method of doing in order to make money really and he needed to draw in customers from uh, outside the neighborhood but before he was able to figure out how to do that he established a sort of a a a culture a real hard sell culture at his crazy eddie store in um in king's highway it wasn't successful but it it was it was a very it wasn't successful though because he couldn't he couldn't sell merchandise at a cheap enough price to satisfy his uh his the, the, the customer base that he had over there on king's highway but he learned on in Times Square, and he applied to Kings Highway. You know the ethos of the hard sell, of selling customers um, merchandise. You know, not letting them leave the store without selling them something, and that was sort of the key, and that was sort of the sort of the basis of his uh, of his sales technique. But that was just the very beginning. He, he 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 took off from there.
1: And just to get the timeline down, I believe the first store. I hope I got my notes right, 1969. And then I think store number two and thereafter around 1973. I can imagine Crazy Eddie uh, doing some type of core values training uh, at some other organization. It would be skimming. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm going to let you tell us what skimming we're talking about. Insurance fraud, mm-hmm. uh, lunching. And and of course you mentioned some of the hardcore techniques. So really, I would say one of the ways that they figured out how to make money uh, in 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 this business was skimming. What 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 were that? Tell us about skimming.
0: Well, Yeah, skimming was a part of Crazy Eddie From before it was called Crazy Eddie. When it was called Sights and Sounds, when it was called ERS. Yeah, a skimming of profits, you have to keep in mind. Not skimming of revenue so much, as skimming right. of profits. Any money you made would go into the ceiling, it would go uh, into the radiator, it might go abroad to a, an account in Israel. Um, skimming was very important initially for the obvious purpose of uh, not paying taxes on it. You know, you're not paying taxes on your income, you're not paying taxes on your profits. Your cu- your, your employees are going to be paid in cash. So they benefit. They don't have to pay taxes on their on their income. Uh, They don't have to pay Social Security tax, which might hurt them later on, but right, you know, when you're young, you don't care. You know, you're paid in tax, it's it's great. Skimming was 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 very, very important to Crazy Eddie later on because skimming was used to it, it was used initially. And just taking it step by step, you know, as I say, you're, you're you're skimming. You're um you're taking money out of your cash register, you're not paying the uh, you know, you're not paying the uh, you're not you're you're not paying taxes on it. Skimming also meant that um you had a repository of cash. I and mean, this cash was sitting somewhere, it was sitting in a safe deposit box, it was sitting in your ceiling, and a behind ceiling panels, it was sitting in Israel. This was a lot of cash, kind of a slush fund, which could later be used to perpetrate fraud. So we won't, we won't get into that right now. But the other things that you mentioned were beginning very early, tax fraud. Now, in addition to not paying taxes because you're taking money out of the business in cash, you're collecting from your customers sales tax. You know, uh, not paying taxes on, on skim cash, that's income tax fraud. Well, they also engaged in sales tax fraud. They would charge sales tax on products and not, not hand it into the government. Now, this this provided a, a very um, important advantage, a competitive advantage, right. because it enabled him to charge less. You know, again, he was trying to discount, he was trying to, he, he wanted to be a discounter. And one of the ways he was succeeded in being a discounter and charging was, by, in charging less than the competition was by collecting sales tax, not passing it on. He had like a cushion, seven to eight percent cushion, so that he was able to charge, in some instances, less than cost because you know you're, he's tacking on the sales tax that he's not passing on to the government. So when he's figured out a way of getting. Um, product and getting good quality product that he could sell it at a discount. This was a real problem because manufacturers didn't want to sell to discounters and he found a way around that. He figured out a way of getting product from marginal retailers from um, in one instance that I describe in the book he, got, he, he was able to get a product that's slightly above wholesale from a, a mob front in the Bronx. A numbers bank in the Bronx that also ran an electronics store, you know, a, a legitimate electronics store, apparently a legitimately run electronics store. He, 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 how he hooked up with these guys, I, I really don't know, but he was able to get merchandise from those guys at slightly above wholesale, and he was able to sell it at a really good price because he collected sales tax that he didn't give to the government. And that was kind of the basis. That's sort of like the launching pad of the Crazy Eddie fraud. And he also had these other other aspects, other things that he did that were not quite kosher, shall we say, not illegal, such as um, insurance fraud, which we can get into now, if you like. Insurance fraud was, was committed throughout the history of Crazy Eddie from beginning to the very, very end before uh, they were taken over. Um, he filed claims they would spike claims they had a burglary they had a flood perhaps and they exaggerated the claims they exaggerated these claims through some what I find to be very humorous and entertaining things
1: i've i've heard this question asked of you before and i want to kind of just hit pause on the book just for a second and if you're not comfortable answering this question i completely understand and respect it but based on everything I've just heard about Crazy Eddie, Eddie mm-hmm. and his family, because I think his family was uh, involved, involved, uh, all the employees. I think a lot of the employees at the early years of, of the organization, many family members, extended family members. The question I have is, could Eddie have been successful playing by the rules?
0: I think he would have. I think the numbers indicate because he did actually eventually go public, he had to come out with numbers, and we sort of know, I think the the public record indicates that he would not have been terribly successful. He might have broken even. Uh, he might have been able to stay in business, but he wouldn't have been as wildly successful as he was stealing right. and committing fraud. Uh, it just wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible. You know, he might have been able to get really great advertising, You know, even if he wasn't all that, Profitable, you know, he had, he's mainly known nowadays course, for this is the Jerry Carroll ads, you know, our prices are insane. This is, this is how he got into the culture was through this advertising. But he couldn't have stayed in business very long. He wasn't really making money. He wasn't legitimately making money. So how it depends on how you define success. He might have been a marketing phenomenon briefly. He might have kept the stores open for a while, but he, he, he couldn't have done that well.
1: Speaking of the commercials, there may be no commercial that's been more parodied by other, uh, by other people, uh, by other shows than the Crazy Eddie commercials. And by the way, you're writing about this. You gave us the background. Uh, you gave us some history. There's more than just the Crazy Eddie ads. There's the genius actually behind them. Mm -hmm. there's the genius of when they're played. So this was very well thought out. Yes, they were crazy. I I think you wrote that there were no storyboards uh, for Mm -hmm. these ads, but I'll say this, there was brilliance in that advertising. Do you, do you concur with that Gary? Oh yeah. There's
0: no question about that. I'm very proud to say that the, uh, the gentleman, the mastermind of the Crazy Eddie advertising, uh, was Eddie, but was also a man named Weiss, Larry Weiss, who is not related to me. I should point out to you, you d- by the way. D- yes, there are so many Weisses. You get out of a phone book if the, you still can get a phone book, and you see a million Weisses in a phone book. There's a million. Weisses. He was not related to me, but the guy named Larry Weiss, uh, he hired Jerry Carroll, and he worked with Jerry Carroll on those ads. They were radio ads, you know, in addition to being TV ads, and um, you know, the, the ethos they had, which is, I think, really interesting when you think about it, was that people love to have something to hate. You know, that Jerry Carroll ads were obnoxious. They were uh, very uh, abrasive and people really didn't like them. You know, they, they, they just were they did not they did not present a good front for, for, for the crazy stores. But they it brought them into the stores, though, you know, and, and their sales took off uh, after Jerry Carroll started screaming. On, on television. So that's, that's genius, both, you know, as a creative, uh, as creative, uh, uh, cr- you know, advertising creation and, and, you know, as marketing, it worked, it got it, it, it increased revenues, but it didn't increase profits. And that's where the fraud came in.
1: I don't know whether to use the word tipping point or inflection point, but one of those Let's use the word inflection point. I would say one of the inflection points to the growth of crazy Eddie. Let's go back to Sammy, the cousin Mm -hmm. bringing him on. And of course in the early going, Eddie, he agrees that let's send Sammy to school. Sammy had a inclination toward numbers accounting. So he becomes an accountant. One of my takeaways in the book is again, this is opinion. I don't know if there's a full book. I don't think your book comes to fruition without Sammy. Mm. Sammy ends up becoming a mastermind. Uh, He may be the brains in the operation. I'd be curious to know if he would agree with that. Mm. What what are your thoughts on that? And again, just to set this up for people listening, uh, again, Sammy is a family member, goes to school, studies accounting, eventually passes his CPA exam, works for a small firm at the same time working for crazy. Then he comes on full-time and eventually becomes CFO. It takes a number of years. Mm -hmm. But my my opinion of of Sammy was that this guy is intelligent. Oh, yeah.
0: There's no question about that. He's a very brainy guy. He, uh, you know, has a... As a kid, he used to read Barron's, used to read the Wall Street Journal. He was always interested in numbers. You know, back at the time, when that wasn't very common, you know. So Eddie was lucky that a member of his family was really interested in numbers because that wasn't part of the culture, you know, back in the, you know, for the baby June, boom generation in the early 70s. Sammy was, uh, was interested in numbers. So... Uh, you know, he was working in the stores. Just another kid working in the stores, and Eddie had a real talent for talent spotting. He saw the talent in in, in his cousin Sammy. He said, "Look, I want you by my right hand. I want you to be my finance my finance guy." He sent him through through school, paid for his education, and Eddie uh, he went to Baruch College, which is uh, the financial, you know, the business school at at the city university system and he, he and it was very well the faculty was was superb and he, he learned from the best he learned finance and he learned accounting for the best people in the business and he would you know because because he worked for crazy eddie and because he worked for eddie and it's and it's you know he was he was part of that culture he he figured out way a way of of, of, of uh, maximizing the profits Leading up to the IPO that the family had always, well maybe not always, but that family really wanted to do an IPO. They wanted to make money. They felt that if they went public, if they had an IPO, they'd get rich. You know, this is the beginning of the IPO boom in the early 80s. They'd get rich. Sammy was coming out of college, and he figured out a way that they could get rich without... Really making money, and and because they were not all that profitable, he he figured out a way of, of of making that IPO really sing.
1: So really, what he had to figure out was we've been skimming all these years, which depresses profits. Mm. Well, now we need to do the opposite. We need to bring these profits back, so investors will say, "Yeah, let's 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 jump on this IPO." So, again, yeah. and that, again, that goes into part, th- this guy was not, this guy was sharp. And oh, and, yeah. and and so let's move in then to the IPO.
0: Oh, yes. The IPO is a real catalyst. It was the real uh, tipping point, you might say, where they went from being just another somewhat shady operation, of which I'm sure there are hundreds or maybe thousands in New York City, okay, particularly it back then, and a real number one top draw fraud that it became, you know, as you point out, uh, they were taking money out of the business, you know, to evade sales tax. I mean, I'm sorry, to evade income tax. And Sammy said, you know, this is foolish. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You're reducing your profits because profits mean taxes. But look, profits also mean huge riches for you if you can convince investors that you're a really profitable company. So here's what you ought to do. This is idea. This is a great idea. Okay, you're taking money out. Manipulate the amount of money that you're taking out. Reduce the skim gradually to make it seem as if your profits are really taking off. And that's exactly, and they they agreed to do this. It took it, was, it took some thinking. It took some advanced planning. Three, four years of slowly reducing the amount of, of skim that they were taking out of the business but it made it seem on paper as if their profits were just exploding and they were only making like in the low single digits in profit increase you know they weren't really doing all that well i mean their profits were increasing but not all that great because you know they were you know yeah i mean they had these jerry Carroll ads and they were great and they were expanding but you know their expenses were high too when you expand you know you got to pay rent on your new businesses so but by reducing the, the skin, they made it seem as if these little two to three percentage increase in profits was really 18%, 20%, 40%, I believe, at one point. Uh huge numbers that were very uncharacteristic for an electronics store. And that and that made it into a Wall Street star. They had a great investment bank, great underwriter, Oppenheimer and Company. Uh, great underwriter great underwriting syndicate and you know the idea being look, well, you know I mean, he, 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 you know you you're you're shooting yourself in the foot don't underpay your taxes if
1: necessary overpay
0: your taxes because you're going to be you meeting eddie and his father okay are you or you guys are going to be the big invest you're going to be the biggest shareholders in this company and your stock price is going to just go through the roof, and that's exactly what happened.
1: There's a section in the book, and I remember this columnist's name. I used to read uh, Barrons at one point, not because mm-hmm. not because I'm some brainiac, but it was cheaper to read Barrons than get a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And I remember the name. Is it Sam Abelson? Uh, is Alan it? Abelson? Alan, a- thank you. I remember that name, and there was someone on the staff that came in and analyzed the numbers, some of the uh, the paperwork. This thing's going to blow up on them. And I think there was a story. it definitely wasn't positive, but it eventually the story went away. And I was thinking at that point, hey they're they're going to find something out. Is there an end to the story? How come they didn't keep digging, or do you remember or did you did your research lead you further? I used to work at Barron's,
0: actually. In fact, I was at Barron's uh when uh, this story was published. I just started there. You know, it was uh, you know, it was a very, you know, investment-oriented publication. And Alan Abel's, you know, he loved negative stories, unlike a lot of investment publications, certainly at the time, he liked he liked negative stories. And you know, here you had this, he had this IPO prospectus, and it was filled with all these red herrings. That is to say, red flags, not red herrings, red flags. A lot of nepotism, a lot of self dealing. The numbers were really good, and there was no way of looking at those numbers and saying, "Hey, this is fraud." No, you couldn't do that. But there was a lot of oddness, a lot of oddities in that in that prospectus, in the crazy Eddie prospectus. Self dealing. It was run as a family business. And look, you know, um, they couldn't lie about everything. You know, they lied about their profits, but they they couldn't. They had to. They had to disclose. Certain things that did not make them look all that great. They were running a medical school, for instance. Eddie was running a medical school down in the Caribbean, which was a big fat failure. And he had to disclose that because he had loaned money from crazy Eddie down to that failing medical school. That medical school was itself a little mini fiasco and if it's of its own right. You know, like imagine, I mean, imagine this, this guy who had a, was a high school dropout, mind you
1: running a medical
0: school what did he do running a medical school but but he correctly he correctly uh, gauged the market for um, you know for medical schools he realized you know that there was a shortage of medical schools but there's an oversupply of kids who want to become doctors and not all of them have the grades well you can go down to the Caribbean and go to this medical school which would took pretty much anybody. And given them some kind of education and medical education. But, uh, you know, it didn't work out. You know, it was a big sort of a big flim flam. He didn't capitalize it correctly and it collapsed. But that was in the prospectus. it didn't look good. A lot of self-dealing, a lot of salaries paid to family members for no good reason. That was in the prospectus. So. It was a lot of smoke, but it was It was very hard, I think, uh, for for Barron's or any financial publication really, to find a fire in addition to the smoke, because when you're dealing with a with a with with, with a with a company's prospectus, when you're looking looking at financial statements, flood doesn't just reach out of the financial statements and grab you by the throat. You know, it, it. There's no way. There was no way of knowing looking at that prospectus. That fraud was being committed. It just—it just wasn't. I mean, it, 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 the numbers look looked really great, and uh, you know, the writer of the uh, the article correctly um, correctly uh, concluded that it would be very very difficult to sustain. <laughs> those uh numbers and so it was a negative piece i mean they didn't it didn't allege fraud it didn't get to the heart of the matter but it, you know it was it was a really pretty good piece given what they had given their inability to really find out what was going on you know the, you couldn't really find out what was going on until people started talking within the company my god that wasn't going to happen for another well, another 10 20, 15 years more, longer it was still a negative piece, and it 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 hit the it hit them badly. Uh, they had to cut the price of the uh, of the IPO, but they still went public.
1: The key to making these numbers work post IPO, inflating inventory, mm-hmm. and of course, I'm reading is like when is this thing going to become a house of cards? What allowed this fraud to keep going? Because Again, I'm old, and yes, yes, <laughs> the people who, who are my kids' age. Yes, we did have public accountants. We did have audits back in the 1970s and 80s. How did this fraud keep going when we had auditors signing off an unqualified opinion year after year?
0: It was a failure of imagination to a very large extent. You know, it's very easy to look back, you know, in hindsight, look at the auditors, look at the financial press, look at the regulators, say, look, you know, these these people that allows lousy job. Because based upon all we know now, this was a was a was a fraud from beginning to end. But that's based upon what we know now. After you know, there were criminal trials for for heaven's sakes. No, at the time, uh, and I think today as well, you know, when an auditor goes into a company, he sort of assumes, or oh, ideally, he's going to be skeptical. And you are, you, know, you have to be skeptical. Maybe you're going to be more skeptical now than you were four, thirty or forty years ago, but you're not going to think, uh, you're not going to assume that the individuals running a company are just outright liars and outright crooks and are inflating their inventories and engaging. If you know, if you assume that every single company that you audit is crooked to the core, is rotten to the core, well, I, you know, you're going to wind up with, you know, you're, you're going to have some problems, you know, as an auditor, I think. Um, I think they went a little bit too far in cutting Eddie slack, in cutting crazy Eddie slack. And I think after a while, uh, they should have noticed. They should have definitely noticed what was going on. Um, they should have realized that. Uh, uh, they were dealing with crooks, but they didn't. Eddie was able to con them. Uh, Sammy was able to con them. It was in their interests, really. It was in the interests of the auditors to uh, not assume that they were crooks. Just as it was in the interests of the um, of the stock market analysts to give a, a glowing portrait of Crazy Eddie. You know, everybody. You know, everybody involved benefited from the assuming good faith on the part of eddie and his people everybody from the journalists you know there's very little benefit to writing a negative story in a newspaper you could get sued you god knows your editors aren't gonna like it i don't care what they, i don't care what they say in public but newspapers and magazines don't like negative articles from their reporters it's just a lot of hassle and you could be wrong. You could be sued. It's awful. And, and and certainly that was the case for investment. You know, for for brokerage house analysts, brokerage house analysts had no incentive to be negative. They were they were in the in the in the in the business of writing positive reports to sell stock, not to you know not to get people not to sell stock. You know, not to not to buy stock. So the, the entire system was set up to promote crazy Eddie from the analysts to the journalists to the regulators. The regulators were overburdened. You know, they they were not in a, in a, in a position to, to find out what was going on at Crazy Eddie. So you had a really tight, well-organized fraud taking place. It didn't go on for long. It collapsed after a time because it was too ambitious. It was too much. They couldn't continue with it forever. It was a house of cards. It was a little bit like a Ponzi scheme. They, they continued to commit fraud. After fraud, after fraud, because once you begin committing fraud, it becomes like a beast. You have to continue to feed it. If they had stopped committing fraud at a certain point, the whole company would have collapsed. And it
1: did. I was going to say, I like it that you gave us not too many numbers, but enough numbers. And I got some notes here. In the first year, the fraud, the the overstatement of inventory, which would have meant the overstatement of profits, around $3 million. Then we flash forward to around actually it's Christmas time in 1986, starting to get all of this competition, and they can't keep up. And that's when this thing, as you say, starting to to fall apart. Uh, again, this is out of the book. Earnings were approximately again reported, twenty one million dollars but then you go on to say that the loss was actually closer to 20 to 25 million dollars again th- this this was a company that in quicksand and no way to get out so the the key is and i'm not i don't remember whose idea it was if it was sammy's or even maybe sammy's father but maybe you need to take this thing private or someone's going to find out so the stock price starts going lower and lower. And I believe they make an offer for $7 a share. Mm -hmm. But then someone in Texas says, wait a minute, $8. And then I think there's a third party that ends up buying it for maybe eight, eight plus dollars a share. So Eddie's family did not get to take the company private. And of course, now I did not know the specifics after that. I'm thinking, okay, they're going to get caught You want to just take it from there. Now, we do want to sell some books. You don't have to give away everything. But Mm. the part of the company being taken private, that was provocative. That was very interesting because I'm wondering, what are they going to do when they find out? How do they find out? Who finds out? Where's Sammy in all this? Is he sweating bullets? So anyway, that is a very fascinating section of the book, The Company Going Private were being bought
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah well you know you have to keep in mind by the prior to the company uh, finally getting bought out you know the fraud was propelled by eddie cashing out his stock you know he knew look this is a piece of garbage this is this is not going to work out he kept selling stock and selling stock and selling stock uh as did uh, some members of his family including his father they were they were just cashing out constantly knowing that it was garbage i mean this is this is insider trading that's what kind of snared them but um all this selling of stock resulted in uh finally people started to wonder why is he selling stock like this what's this all about it this really didn't help the stock price at all and with all the competition that started to really pile on crazy you know he created the seeds of his own destruction you know by creating by successfully creating a discount chain on electronics, uh, everybody started discounting. So he got competition, lots of competition. Meanwhile, he's selling stock and and he's got competition. The combination of those two destroyed the stock price. Now, when the stock price went down, it attracted people wanting to buy out the company because you see, when they went public, it didn't dawn on them that when you go public, Anybody can just come in and accumulate your stock, take over the company, throw you out. And after they throw you out, my gosh, they're going to find out what's going on in this company because it'll be their company. And they're going to see that this pe- company is a piece of garbage. And that's exactly what happened. My gosh. What do you know? That's exactly what happened. First, it was, as you mentioned, there was this fellow who... Um, this 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 the first first guy you know a lot of people were smelling sniffing around the company but the guy who really decided to take the bull by the horns by the company was this fella, Elias zinn out of texas young fella very much like eddie in many respects you know colorful interesting fella i'm gonna i'm gonna take over this company you know the things kind of didn't you know eddie threw up roadblocks and nothing really worked so then this this other guy came in from California, really, really sharp. Customer came in from from from, Cali- from California and joined Elias Zinn in buying out the company, and uh, they wound up with garbage. And with this, this took place right around the crash in 1987. Some of us may recall that. Yes. Major, and you right around the time of the crash in 1987 is when these these guys. Um, Fellow named Victor Palmieri was the uh, California sharp guy. You know, he 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 got all kinds of slobbering attention in the media as a man who turned around companies that were just horrible, you know, like Baldwin United, which was a piano company. You know, who the hell buys a piano nowadays? And they try to rescue themselves by going into insurance, you know. And he grabbed that company and he squeezed it for profits. And oh my god, what a, what a genius! You know, you should read the read the. So he took over Crazy Eddie in, in collaboration with Elias. And, and then they realized, oh my god! Sure enough, this company is, is just in, is is in. Is it is, is inflated? The, the main, the first thing they they noticed about the company was that its its inventories weren't anywhere near what they expected because they've been systematically inflated, and well, it was just downhill from there. You know, as soon as they became aware of this, uh, before you knew it, the feds woke up, and it was a um, not just an SEC investigation, a serious SEC investigation for the first time. There was a criminal investigation. And it was all over for Eddie Antar. By then, he had already fled to Israel. He had he had absconded with his money, uh, and fled to Israel, which is, you know, um, he was hoping. Uh, those of us with long memories will recall a man named Meyer Lansky, who was a who was a gangster from the nineteen thirties. He fled to Israel in the early seventies, and a uh, major gangster. And uh, uh, Eddie hoped that. You know, and they eventually forced Lansky to return to the U.S. But Eddie was hoping, you know, I'll um, I'll I'll beat Lansky at his own game. I'll I'll go to Israel and they'll protect me. But they didn't, and he had to get back. He he had a he had to return to Israel. He had to return to the United States. Now that's a whole story in itself. Why did he? Why did the Israelis disown him? Because Eddie decided. To become a citizen, he was also going to make good, he, he also created aliases to in order to, to engage in illegal banking. And he, he made one of his aliases into a citizen. And the Israelis didn't like that. They didn't want a phony person to
1: become a citizen of Israel.
0: So uh, they tried desperately to get rid of him, and eventually they did.
1: And again, Sammy had a lot to do with that, turned a huge 360 again. In the book. And we'll, oh, yeah. let, we'll let the readers uh, read that part. I have an un, another unfair question for you. And let me give you uh, some of the background to it. I've interviewed uh, Aaron Bean. Uh, Aaron Bean, and he is a, the former CFO for Health South, <clears throat> And he went to prison for about three or four months for uh, fraudulent financial statement reporting. Oddly, he was not the CFO at the time, Uh, when all this unraveled in the press. But he was part of it, and so he ended up uh, serving time in prison. Uh, He is now a very gifted, extremely gifted public speaker. He's written a book. He's been on the show twice, and I consider him a, a friend. I asked him a question. He's written a book about ethics, and his answer was good and I wish we could have spent more time on it. He's a believer in teaching ethics, but my opinion about ethics teaching is that if you're a bad seed to begin with ethics, teaching and education, it is worthless. Was Eddie could, could any ethics class had ever Cause Eddie to go down a different path. I already have an opinion.
0: Oh, I don't think there's any possibility of that. You know, I mean, come off it now. I mean, keep in mind, you know, with Sammy Antar, you know, as, as you point out, you know, Sammy Antar, and we haven't really talked about Sammy Antar, he was the financial brains behind all of the frauds up to until he flipped and became a federal witness. Uh, when he was at Baruch College, he was a student of one of the most ethical yes finest accounting people i quite personally met i didn't know a barons wonderful man uh a brill
1: off the epitome
0: of ethics and accounting and and he taught very popular classes at baruch on on accounting there were required classes and they were electric classes and there, there were hundreds of people would gather and listen to this man he not only taught ethics. He lived ethics, this man. You couldn't get a better teacher on, on accounting ethics, even though that wasn't the subject of his class. Nevertheless, he taught about how accounting should be, how accounting ought to be, uh, ethical, looking out for the investor and for the customer, not looking out for the, for the personal interests of the, the uh, 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 Any uh, He was just a fabulous individual. And Sam e. Antar was his student. I didn't turn Sammy Antar into a <laughs> into a into an ethical guy exactly uh, that that ship had sailed by the time he went to Baruch. so I would say no uh, there isn't the slightest possibility that an ethics class would help. Uh, I don't see how it helped it all uh, could help anybody really
1: and I think that's just instruction of maybe rethinking how ethics are taught at any level. Or in any environment, it's almost like ethics is for the people who are already ethical, <laughs> or maybe maybe on the bubble. Uh, it's like okay, if you get caught, here's what's going to happen. But again, well, I-, I think it's okay.
0: it's okay to teach ethics. Look, don't get me wrong. You should definitely teach ethics, and you should really really drum it into the kids' heads. But honestly, uh, I don't see it really doing very much good. But you got to try. You should definitely try. Try. Maybe you'll save one accountant from himself. You'll
1: save one CPA. Maybe the way I should word my opinion is that when we teach it, we may not get the desired outcomes uh, that 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 we want.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, again, I love the book Retail Gangster. It is a great book. It's going to have a long shelf life. It's one of those books I think every accountant uh, should read. I think anyone teaching accounting should. Uh, I think people who love business history, uh, it's a, and plus, if you just want a an interesting book to read, it's a great narrative nonfiction. So just just a just a kudos to, uh, for your your writing and and giving us this book. I well, do. Thank ha- you, Mark. I
0: appreciate it very much.
1: I, I ask this question to everybody that I interview, and I'm going mm-hmm. to do the same thing with you. I know you're a reader. What are some of your favorite books?
0: well i'm um i am a, a great fan of gerald posner uh, who i i'm pleased to say actually gave a blurb for my book i was one of the great thrills of my life gerald posner is one of the great nonfiction writers on subjects relating to corporate malfeasance and and you know he just did this book farm by a fabulous book but he's done books on the kennedy assassination you know he'll 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 attack these conspiracy theories which are like poison and he'll get to the heart of the matters. He wrote this fabulous book on John, on the JFK assassination, called Case Closed. And he wrote a book called Killing the Dream on the uh, Martin Luther King assassination. So I'm I'm a great fan of, of Gerald Gerald Posner. I'm also a great fan of uh, uh, Ben McIntyre, the British uh, the British writer um, who just came out with a wonderful book on Colditz Castle. If you're uh, if you're a World War II buff as I am. <laughs> you'd like joe McIntyre. so those are two of the writers who I I, I I could mention uh as i'm being a
1: big fan of well again gary thank you very very much been an honor to, to have you on the show
0: appreciate your time having me i really appreciate it it's been great fun
1: you are listening to cfo bookshelf lifelong learning for financial leaders and now back to our host mark gandy Again, the name of the book is Retail Gangster, the Insane Real Life Story of Crazy Eddie. And again, the author, Gary Weiss. Thank you for being on the show. We need to call this a wrap. Always be learning. Always be making a difference. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.